really, Umar, you don't really ask great probing questions. I mean, there are some promoters. I feel like some promoters do interviews with you guys. They ask what's going to be said first. They have notes. They ask to see the interviews. They get the interviews cut. One promoter I know did an interview with, the other, with you the other day for 50 minutes, right? And then phoned up and asked you not to put the interview out. So, unfortunately for me, all I do is I do it raw. I never ask to know a question. I never ask for things to be taken out. I never ask to see it before it goes out. I never say, oh, don't put that interview out. But people don't really see that. I just feel that your interviews are more kind of like leading questions, asking what people want to be asked. But at no point are we saying to Tyson Fury or to Frank Warren, can we just confirm that the reason this whole deal, which your team started anyway, didn't take place, is because you weren't willing to fight Alexander Usyk. Now, welcome back to the number one podcast in the sport where our emperor has now realised he has no clothes. And this is going to be a really rough year for Emperor Eddie Hearn, but it's nothing less than people have been predicting, at least for the last year and a half. But instead of making this about Hearn, let's make this more about the, the how do you call it, the emerging success of Sky. I, um, I probably timed it while recording on a Tuesday morning simply because we got to see the the viewing figures, or Sky's self-declared viewing figures. And the reason we have to accept these is these are the same figures, this is the same process Hearn used to use, right? So it's useful for comparison. Now, they're telling us that peak viewing for their Saturday night card was over a million. And they haven't had those numbers since, what was it, Joshua versus Cornish? Now, I think the Cornish fight was the point where Eddie said, AJ is now pay-per-view fighter. So I don't know what that makes Chris Eubank Jr. I think that must validate his claim to be pay-per-view. But I think that's important because for years the viewership was in the doldrums and that was the pressure they kept putting on Eddie. They said it's not just about the pay-per-views. It's not just about Joshua and Dillian. It's about being able to deliver a consistent product that the fans can get behind. Now they've done it once. Can they do it again? And... And I don't know. So it poses a really interesting question, and we'll come on to this afterwards. But if you think about this, just up front, I think it makes it easier. What is Sky? Is Sky essentially a, a neutral platform where they say, we've got four or five people we're betting the house on. Everyone outside of that, get in where you fit in. We're going to put you in hard fights because we want to keep viewers but if you want to be on Sky, if you want that Sky machine, if you want to take your career to the next level, you can jump on. But there are no easy fights for you here. If that's the model, that's going to be really interesting in terms of how far you can take that. But I think at the short term, it's going to give us really compelling viewing. And I've had a, I've had a few days to catch up on stuff. And I feel warmer about the fight than I did on the Sunday. Or about the whole card than I did on Sunday. On Sunday, I felt... Mm, they hadn't really kicked on the way I wanted them to, but having reflected on it, actually I think what Sky doing is pretty smart. So I think it's fair to just focus on things in the order of importance for me. So Eubank versus Williams wasn't the fight that we thought it would be. Um, strip all the nonsense aside, it wasn't competitive. You know, having, having gone back and reviewed the fight, 
I genuinely think this. I believe this. My heart of hearts. Eubank could have turned the lights off at any time. He was he was so far ahead. It looked like he was having fun in there. And sometimes boxers do that. They know they're that far enough ahead that they go right. Let me just take a few of these shots. I don't think Liam Williams was hurting him. I don't think Liam Williams could hurt him. And maybe Liam Williams is at the wrong weight. I don't believe he is because I think 160 was hard for him. Just from what I'm hearing on the boxing streets, the weight cut was hard. And so by the time he went to the ring, he had nothing left. Now, you're trained by Adam Booth. Adam Booth is supposed to be the, well, the, the dark lord, the man who can sit in a lab and come up with all sorts of recovery drinks and this, that, and the third, because he studied it, right? Yet he couldn't do anything for Liam Williams. And once again, this is another career on the scrap heap, thanks to Adam Booth. But you can't really blame Adam Booth, because Adam doesn't train him, and maybe that's the problem. Adam doesn't train these guys. He just gets them in, and he lets his pal, I don't know what his name is, is it H? And H goes and does it. We don't know who H is. H is just an apprentice, from what it would seem. And most people I meet who go to Adam's gym and leave are like, well, I didn't want to be trained by H. And they don't rate him. Now, I'm not saying he's good or he's bad. It's not my business. I'm just saying they don't rate him. So I don't know what Liam Williams has done. Um, I have a feeling you'll see Liam Williams training out of Wales if his career is to continue. My own view on him would rather he didn't. I don't like dirty fighters, not a fan of them. Um, I had this back and forth with Porky on Sunday and he was saying, what about Andre Ward? And I went back and I watched the Ward-Froch fight. Ward did leap in with his head. Now, if you've got two heads together and you're jockeying for position, because sometimes you want to get your head from the right side to the left side, I'm less concerned about that. That's a boxing accident. And you can name numerous situations where that happens. Black, white, it doesn't really matter. Guys like Calzaghi have done it. Everyone, you, just pretty clever. Golovkin does it, right? Where Golovkin shows you the move where he drives your chin back with his head. It, it, there are tactics like that. What's unacceptable, and I use Marcus Brown as a prime example, and I use Liam Williams as a prime example, where your aim is to leap in with your head. You're deliberately trying to take that space with your forehead. Because it's reckless. And what it does is it cuts people. And it leaves them vulnerable to cuts further down in their career. And it's, it's not good. When you talk to people in the sport, that's one of the worst things you can do. Being reckless with your head is the equivalent of eye gouging in rugby, for example. It's, it's just disgusting because you're supposed to take care of each other to a certain extent. There's a, there's a trust that happens in the ring that you'll fight fairly. And Liam Williams doesn't. And he takes pride in that. That's the sad part about all of this. So yeah, I'm a guy who'd happily not... I'd, have, I'd be happy not seeing him in the sport again. Just because of that. And I'd be happy not seeing Marcus Brown in the sport again because of that. And I wanted to be a Marcus Brown fan, but after the Badu Jack cut and now the Baturbiev cut, get rid. And someone's going to say, well, what about Evander Holyfield? I feel the same way about Holyfield. I feel the same way. Because people kept pulling him up on it. So you, you headbutt people and referees don't police it. And maybe it's the referee's fault. As soon as someone's reckless with their head, give them a warning. Then a second warning, then start taking points before you disqualify them. They'll soon stop. In terms of Chris Eubank Jr., massive fan. Um, fan of everything. He, he's one of those guys, 
it's almost like he's mastered how to appeal to British boxing fans. One, he gives nothing away publicly. Doesn't talk about much in public. Doesn't get involved in contentious issues. Only focuses on his career and what he needs to do. Secondly, he's just got that stoic demeanor. Just literally doesn't give much away. But here's the thing we love about him. He's clearly got his dad's toughness. But, he's all, but deep down, he's got that desire to take your head off. I don't know if the Roy Jones thing works long term because Junior's getting older and he'll slow down. And at that point, he'll have to revert back to old Eubank who was supremely fit and a hell of a volume puncher. And that's how he's going to start breaking people down. You're not going to outbox Golovkin because he's just going to be there in front of you. You're going to have to up the work rate. Now, what he did against Williams wouldn't work against Golovkin. But that doesn't mean that he'd lose to Golovkin. It just means he'd have to do something different. Would he be any good against Charlo? Then it'd be a hell of a fight. Uh, but what would you do? Now, go back to the Groves fight, where Eubank Jr. was against the guy who could sharpshoot. And Charlo can sharpshoot. And maybe Charlo is harder than George. Not heavier than George, but just harder than George. So would that be a problem? Hard to tell because no one's dropped Jr., I don't think. You know, please fact check that for me, but... Junior hasn't been dropped from what I see. And you rarely see him hurt or wobbled. So, what? let's be honest. What we want from him is a run now where there's no filler. This Liam Williams fight should be the last one of the filler fights he has in his career. Everything from now on has to be that, you know, Canelo, Golovkin, Charlo, uh, Mungil, that level. It has to be that level. Might let him get Sergei Devryanchenko to get himself acclimatized to that level. But beyond that, no. I don't want to see anyone brought up from 154, no one brought up from 147. I want him to be fighting real contenders and real champions now because he deserves that. He's put the work in for long enough. And remember, between Hearn and Warren, they tried to shut him out of British boxing. And look at him now, anchoring the Sky platform. So as British boxing fans, let's get behind Junior. Let's, let's wish him all the best because he might be the guy to, to make the Sky platform exciting again. I'm also happy to see Caroline Dubois finally make her debut. I think my, my view, based on what I've seen and what I know of Caroline Dubois, I think Caroline Dubois is special. I think she achieved amazing things in the Olympics considering how young she is. And people have to also remember... Sometimes you can be boxing mature and not necessarily like adult type mature. And I think she's still maturing as a woman. So there's a lot that she's learning and going through that will only stand her in better stead going forward. My only question is, is she ahead of people because she's been doing it longer or because she's better? And I don't think we're going to find that out yet. But that's going to be the big question because that experience gap can close pretty quickly in female boxing. If it turns out, She's strong enough, she's skilled enough and makes great decisions in ring. I don't think you hold a candle to her. She might be one of the all-time greats. So I'm still excited about her. But I think the Daniel Dubois experience showed me that you've got to see what they do in the field. You've got to see what they do under pressure. But there's no doubting the talent there. The talent and the application. She'll be one of those fighters, unlike Shannon Courtney, there'll be no distractions. 
There'll be no distractions. There'll be no hype. There'll be no talk. It will just all be done in the ring. And I think as boxing fans, that's what we're asking for. So glad to see she's up and running. Uh, I think having people like Ellie Scottney around her will be fantastic. I think they'll bring the best out of each other. So I hope, I hope they see that as an opportunity to, to make each other special. Because those two there, I think, are the anchors of British female boxing going forward. It, it would be wrong of me to, to ignore Clarissa Shields and the, the whole Savannah Marshall thing. In terms of Clarissa Shields' fight, a standard Clarissa Shields fight where she's miles ahead of the opponent but can't get them out of there. And if you go back to when she first started and she was just this tornado of punches, which she still is to an extent, but she's trying to do what Joshua did and go away from what works. Clarissa Shields will just overwhelm you with work rate and she's pretty strong as well, right? It's what I like about her. This idea that you're going to turn her into this finesse boxer, this sharpshooter, that she's going to be the female Mayweather, park it. And it's not going to happen, mainly because it's not her personality. Her personality is, I'm not going to let you breathe. Whether it's a conversation where she'll just out-talk you, or it's a fight where she'll just out-punch you. If she tries to be slick against Savannah Marshall, that would be a really tough fight for her. She can overwhelm Savannah Marshall with work and put the pressure on Savannah Marshall to be precise in her, in her counter punches and what she does going back. But if I'm being honest with you, if Clarissa Shields comes to seek and destroy, it's a hard fight for Savannah Marshall. She then becomes the massive underdog in that fight. So after the fight, they had their customary head-to-head I saw some people on social media saying it felt a bit contrived. And I disagree with that. I think that might be the first time in in years that they've been in the same place at the same time. So all of a sudden, you saw the competitive Savannah Marshall. Savannah Marshall, who's not going to have the piss taken out of her on her platform in her country. No chance in hell. And she gave as good as she got. Uh, It's a shame because it's hard to argue with someone that's got two Olympic gold medals and has won every belt they fought for. It's pretty hard to to argue. And if I was Sav at this point, I'd just say, right, we're just going to fight and let's get it done. And once it's done, what happens? That's why I feel for Savannah Marshall. If Savannah Marshall beats Clarissa Shields, then what? Nothing really. You've beaten the best female boxer on the planet. You've kind of climbed Everest. There's nothing left for you. You could go up to heavyweight and take those guys on, but we don't know who those guys are, so they ain't going to do nothing for your for your legacy. Clarissa Shields, you beat Savannah Marshall, then what? You go all the way down to welterweight to win a title? It, their careers kind of stop with each other, which is a real shame because it highlights the fact that boxing hasn't created a, a pipeline of viable com- challenges at that sort of middleweight, super middleweight level. If you look, a lot of the 75 kilo ladies tend to stay in the amateur system. So uh, Katie Parker looks like she's going to stay on for Australia. Kay Scott's going to do the Commonwealth Games at 81. They would be the women you'd like to be building up as viable opponents. But are they at that level? Hard to tell. Because remember, you're dealing with a, a two-time gold medalist. And you're dealing with Sav, who's, who's medaled in, a, in most of the tournaments she's been in as well. And I think there's a... They're so far ahead of everyone else that it's not even fair and it's not even close. I don't know what you do with them after they fight each other, to be honest with you. 
I, I wouldn't be surprised if Savannah retired. And I wouldn't be surprised if Clarissa said, I've done everything I need to do in the pro game. I'm going to go and win a third Olympic medal. That wouldn't surprise me either. So look out for that to be the subplot about Clarissa Shields going back to win another gold medal. I'm going to come on to uh, the big guy, Drago, in a second. I want to touch on Sam Antwi because I was happy to see Sam Antwi for any number of reasons. One, he's had a really strange career. So Sam, I remember him from the TA Boxing Club down in Southeast London. And back in the day, he was really close with Isaac Dogbo and that whole crew there. And that's kind of how we know Sam Antwi. And so Sam, I think his first four fights were on Dogbo undercards. So he was with Isaac through that early part of his career. And then he kind of disappeared. He came back to the UK and no one would put him on because he didn't sell tickets. And he didn't sell tickets because he hadn't been here. Right? He, had, he hadn't been here. And so he got labeled unfairly as one of these guys that doesn't sell tickets and that he's lazy. And I don't think it's true. It was just that he's been away for so long. I think he boxed in the States and he boxed in Ghana. So he's kind of been in this weird wilderness. And I think the guy who kind of brought him back was Tommy Dove. And people do not give Tommy Dove the respect he deserves. If you see Tommy Dove anywhere, he might be in your boxing club. He might be driving a cab, whatever. If you see Tommy Dove, shake his hand and buy that man a beer. Because he did so much for London boxing. So much. Um, he resurrected Domak and Lardy. And so he gave hope that, you know, we could maybe have a viable heavyweight there. He resurrected Ian Lewison. He gave debuts to guys like Richard Riakpo. He gave debuts to guys like Andre Sterling. You know, Ashley Bailey Demetz was there as well. A load of guys from South London got put on by Tommy Dove. I don't feel that they ever repaid that because Tommy lost a shit ton of money on them because they refused to, they refused to sell tickets, some of them. And I was like, wow. Even after you've made pro success, I don't hear guys say, yeah, you've got to thank Tommy Dove, or I wouldn't have got any fights. And it's true, because Steve wasn't going to sign guys that don't want to sell tickets. Mickey Hellyett was like, uh, come back when you've won something. And so it was Tommy Dove who took the gamble and said, see these guys out of Miguel's and this gym and that gym? Let me bring them all together and maybe build some kind of like franchise proposition. It didn't work out, but with the five or six fights that Tommy Dove did put on, Look at the names I've just mentioned. He's, he put on a lot of good people. Because Tommy's good at, and he doesn't get credit for this, he can spot talent. I think his old man was a promoter as well. And, uh, Tommy, to, listen, Tommy's got hands, man. I'm not going to lie, he's quite heavy-handed. He doesn't look it because he's quite nice and friendly, but he's quite heavy-handed. So for me, people need to put some respect on Tommy Dove's name for his ability to identify talent and actually put money up. Yeah. So I don't know if he's matchmaking for anyone famous at the moment, but definitely, man, a lot of respect for Tommy. Sam Antwi, lovely to see him on TV. Did what Sam does. Entertained, showed you he's double tough. But what's his ceiling? Is the ceiling British level? Do you put him in with a Chris Congo for a British title at some point? I don't know, because you had, what's his name? Chris Jenkins fighting in Dongo. Do you fight? Can Antwi fight Chris? He probably, he probably could fight Chris Jenkins. I don't think that's a hard fight for him. You know, I, I don't think beating Ndongo, having drawn him all the way up to 147, says a lot. Like, Ndongo got, 
he proved that there's there's nothing in that rib cage. To be honest with you, and he he's got a, like an Easter egg torso is the best way to describe it. So that doesn't really tell us much. So let's see what Sam Antwi does. I think put him in for the British. Is that his ceiling? I don't know. Does he move up to 154 where he used to fight? Maybe. But he'll always be in entertaining fights. And this is what I've been saying about Sky. If they just pick guys and say, look, we think this is an entertaining fight. We'll make it for a belt. Get stuck in. Perfect. Sam Antwi will get work for as long as he wants it. You start talking about all that career management and you've got to have some soft fights here and a learning fight there. Now nah, we ain't interested in that. Like, this is it's show and prove time this year. But I want to continue this theme about paying respect to people who can spot talent because you've got to look at this guy, Steve Robinson, and say, who the hell signed him? Who signed off on Steve Robinson? Who the hell signed off on Steve Robinson? Is, <laughs> Do you remember the Southampton player? I think it was Ali Deer who said he was George Weah's cousin. <laughs> and he got signed by Graham Sooners for Southampton. Got subbed on and got subbed off. He was that bad. I'd put Steve Robinson in that category of someone's, someone's had you. Like you've, been sold on that. you've been sold an absolute monkey there. Because he fought a guy in Shane Gill who wasn't very good. Like, seriously not very good. Basic. Um, you know, they, they tried to oversell his white-collar experience and they tried to imply that uh, Steve Robinson had no amateur experience and that's not true. Steve Robinson's been beaten by a fair few people. And here's the thing I don't understand. And I might be wrong on this. I thought boxers signed Nick Campbell as well. So if you're going to back someone who's slightly overage, why wouldn't you back Nick Campbell? Why are we seeing this, this Drago guy twice when we could have seen Nick Campbell? Now, Nick Campbell can box. Nick Campbell went through the amateur system. Nick Campbell has some credible wins and some credible performances. He, he also brings in that rugby crowd because he's got that story of switching over from Glasgow and he played rugby for Jersey. So he's got, he's got a profile that exists outside of boxing. Everything about him makes sense. But I look at old USSR. <laughs> I've never seen someone that big refuse to jab. Like literally just didn't want to jab, just wanted to throw big hooks. And it's as if someone told him, you can bomb everyone out of there. You're bigger than them. You're stronger than them. You know, he saw the guy was 0-1 and, and he thought, right, I'm going to bomb this guy out of there. And that Shane Gill said... I'm going to find out if you've got any heart. And after the first round, he sussed out that there was no heart in there. Sorry that he's not, it's not that Steve Robinson's not tough. He is. It's that he hasn't got that thing in him that says, seek and destroy. Which is ironic, because you want to call yourself Drago. And so he got exposed by a guy who's really not good. Like, you couldn't put Steve Robinson in with, with a Nick Webb. Like, the floor would get wiped left, right, and center. So who signed him? Who said that this guy was good enough for Sky? In a sport where we don't get to see Dave Abraham, in a sport where they didn't sign Nick Webb, who said the Steve Robinson guy was at that level? Steve Robinson doesn't beat Dominic Akinlade today, right now. He doesn't beat Dominic. I don't even think he beats Ian Lewison. And I don't even need to see Ian Lewison to believe that. I was just off the top of my head like, I feel like texting my friend Linton and saying, Linton, I think, 
I think you should fight Steve Robinson. You'd beat him too. And you only have one arm. It was, that's probably the first own goal Sky have had because the warnings were there. The warnings were there and they still committed to signing. Why? Because someone's clearly said, ah, oh, well, it'll be good for boxing in the Northeast. Well, now look, the guy's lost. And I don't think it's like you can, <laughs> you can't find him a worse opponent to beat. Like you literally, you'd have to pay someone to throw themselves on the floor against him. It's, so let me, let me give my theory on what happens. When you get in a certain position in boxing, when you're a head trainer or whatever it is, head trainer, or you're in the opposite sky, you're so far away from the grassroots, you don't have time to engage in the grassroots because if you're not training your fighters, you're with your family, right? So what happens over the years is these people as guy go to the same talking heads and they'll go, what about this person? What about that person? And that other person they're asking has no idea who's good anymore. They'll know the, the mainstream names like your Pat and Luke McCormack. They'll know your Ben Whittakers. They'll know your Callum Frenches. They'll know your Peter McGrails. They'll know all of those guys because it's not hard. But are they going to know Rampton Musa? Are they going to know Jamie Shakiva? Are they going to know Courtney Bennett? No. You know, are they going to know, like even back in the day, are they going to know these guys like Mason Smith? Are they going to know the guys like Jordan Flynn? No. Because they don't have the time or the interest in getting down to that level. But I tell you who will know, and I give them a hard time, but I tell you who would know. Steve Bunce. Steve Bunce is one of those guys who could be one of those like sort of talent consultants and say, okay, Steve. What do you think of this guy? Steve's got a good barometer of who will make it and who won't make it. That's one thing I'll give him credit for. But most of these other people, is people doing favors for their mates. A lot of these guys you see on TV shouldn't be on TV over and above the guys who aren't. Look at, all, look at the guys who've had careers on TV while Linus Adofi and Brad Pauls have schlepped it out in the, in the boondocks, so to speak. They could have been TV fighters from, from day one. There's nothing out there that's special. I feel the same way about Jermaine Brown. If Kurt Garvey was younger now, Sky would have probably hoovered him up. Doing a favor. Oh, well, he's Earlsfield. He has to be good. And I would have said, no, he's brittle. It's not that he's not a good or a bad boxer. He's just physically brittle. You don't want that when you're promoting shows because you don't get your certainty. But I, I'm... I'm not a fan of that approach. I think you should have to earn your right to get on there. Stop just throwing people in the mix and saying, oh, he's good. W what makes him good? Because I said he's good. Then I've got a hard time for saying this about John Pilata. People said, oh, mate, you told us Pilata would be the best thing in the world. And I said, no, I didn't. I told you John Pilata's talented and he could box at British level. And I stand by that statement. What happened was life got in the way. That's all that happened with JP. Life got in the way. And so I've been mostly right about things. I was right about Dan Aziz and I was right about Denzel. I'm, I'm right mostly. And I tell you why I'm right. I, I see these guys and I've seen them under pressure. I've seen them in the heat of battle. I didn't hear it second or third hand. And I think what's happening is at that boxer level, they're hearing things second and third hand. And, you know, 
this guy here. It might be a Carl Greaves. Carl Greaves says, I heard this kid is good. And then someone at Sky goes, Carl Greaves said he heard this kid is good, therefore the kid is good. Now, that's just Carl's opinion. He might not have even seen the kid. He might have just heard. And that's no shock to Carl. But this is what happens because he's got his own boxing life. So he can't go to amateur shows. He's not at the amateur tournaments like he'd like to be. Because that's not his job. And I think that's true for a lot of people in boxing. They're just out of touch. And so they rely on people to tell them. But sometimes the people who tell them don't know what the F they're doing either. Now, I don't know how you fix the Steve Robinson problem. So how do you stop um, people who aren't good enough from making it on? If you remember, that's what the small whore was meant to be for. Steve Robinson should have been on Phil Jeffries' shows until he, he beat someone we could recognize. Uh, do you see what I mean? Like, that's what you needed from him. You needed that kind of performance where maybe he, he fights a Camel Sokolowski and wins. And you go, okay, put him on TV now. Because we saw the same with George Fox. But I think it's different with George in the sense of George can box and George has a record of boxing. We recognize George. And, you know, George's challenges are more, he just doesn't have the power, but he's aesthetically good enough and he knows what he's doing in the ring. I don't believe for a second Steve Robinson knew what he was doing in that ring. Now, I can blame him to a certain extent, but who the hell's training him? Who's training him? And this comes back to something I've been talking about for a long time. A lot of professional boxers are being handled by clowns. Yeah? Let's strip all the nonsense aside. A lot of professional boxers are being handled by clowns. Guys who literally walk into the gym with a pair of pads and all of a sudden you're training contenders. Because you're mates with someone. And you're there all up in the Instagram videos doing pads badly. You're not correcting people. And I'm watching young lads who've got fights coming up making mistakes that are going to get them hurt. I'm watching this. And these guys are, are terrible. And the reason they're terrible is anyone can walk up and get a board license. As long as someone in the sport vouches for you and you can answer a few questions, you're fine. Nobody should be allowed to train a professional until they've won something in the amateurs. You have to have taken a kid to a tournament and you have to have taken your kid to a win before you graduate and work with the professionals. You just have to. There's a certain amount of knowledge and experience that will come with that. I've said it in previous episodes. Experience is knowing what not to do. Yeah, Everyone knows what to do. It's not hard. Boxing's not this hard thing. The experience is going, that ain't going to work or that's not going to work. We need to do it differently because what you're doing there just won't work long term. Because as a trainer, you're managing load and you're managing load over a whole career, not just a fight camp. And look, you see it with Joshua now. Joshua realizes he wasn't handled by the best people. And now he's looking for that, that inspiration, you know, kind of last chance saloon type selection in terms of a trainer. You go, well... Who do you go with? You look for experience because the experience will tell you what not to do. Joshua does a lot of things he shouldn't do. And clearly people have been such big fans of his, they haven't told him the truth. Will he find someone to tell him the truth? That Steve Robinson needed someone who could train him. And he didn't have that. And he's paid a heavy price for it. I don't know if you come back from that. You lost to a guy 0-1. I don't know, like, psychologically, how do you come back from that? 
You know, it's not like he's 21 and he can rebuild. The guy is, what, 30-something? The experiment's over, man. Sell the Drago trunks, man. I don't know. Donate them to the Rocky Museum. Whatever you want to do, but that whole clowning shit of, yeah, Drago, it's done, mate. You're not Drago. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I don't even know, mate. You're, the Australians would just call you a Drongo, but I was disappointed in that because I think that's one of the areas where Sky got it wrong. I don't think Sky have got many things wrong, actually. I think, I think Ben Shalom's a refreshing voice in boxing. Maybe it's just because it's different. And we'll see what happens when we've had him for a year, a year and a half. Will we feel the same way? But he's very matter-of-fact about things. You don't get the sense that he's, he's into the same nonsense that Eddie Hearn was into when he was on Sky. I'm still not sold in the commentary. Andy Clark's a no for me. Uh, Matt Macklin's a no for me. He's... He's so far off the mark in terms of what's happening in the ring that he's distorting the fans' perspective. Adam Smith should stay. I think Adam Smith's class, I think, I think he anchors it really well. That enthusiasm is something you don't get from any other commentator in this country. So long may he continue. As always, Johnny Nelson's what's needed because Johnny will get you 2,000 tweets. One sentence from Johnny Nelson is 2,000 tweets. So I understand why he's there. Now, Sky's a, it's an intelligent machine. They know what they're doing. In terms of the Michaela Mayer thing, I got stick for this because on Porky's show, I said I don't see why she was there, and I stand by this. I don't understand why Michaela Mayer is essentially in the UK for a glorified holiday because she was flown out, and she's been hosted, essentially, by Sky. I know there's a relationship with Top Rank, but... We can't think of a logical fight that can happen on Sky involving Michaela Mayer. So what was she there for? And, you know, the argument is, ah, but she, was, she gave a good account of herself and so on. There are many British fighters, male and female. Natasha Jonas could have probably done something there too. Why was it Michaela Mayer? I have no idea. I didn't agree with it because I'd rather be giving platforms to British female fighters. There are enough characters in the sport who could have done that. You could have asked the Beck Connolly to come on and do that. You know I mean, anyone could have come on and done that. I just felt it was a bit gimmicky and I didn't really support that. And, and Sky needs to stay away from being gimmicky. The reason they did the numbers is because they put on competitive fights. All this other clown stuff doesn't work. And I wish we'd stop that. Just, just get us people we can believe in. Now, Macklin's not one of them anymore. He was. like When you gave Macklin 30 seconds between rounds, he was okay because he couldn't shoot himself in the foot. You give him a whole show, he just shoots himself in the foot. And that's why Eubank Jr. called him out. And I think Eubank Jr. was right to call him out. Like, Macklin's scorecard was an embarrassment. But I don't know what Sky will do. I, I'm still happy with Sky because I think a lot of the right people are on the platform. I just think sometimes you've got to have that six-month review of what the product is doing. And I don't, I think they need to do some stuff. Like, they got rid of that stupid heat map, for God's sake, which was the right thing to do. But now they've got to look at what they're really trying to achieve here. And I think that that Fight Night product could be improved significantly. What I do want to do is I want to congratulate Bam Rodriguez for his win against uh, Carlos Cuadras. Uh, what was it for, the WBC Superfly, something like that? Kid's 22 years old, gets given five days' notice to step up and fight. A guy who's top 10, top 5 in his division, drops him early in the fight, goes on to win. 
And the reason that fight stands out is you couldn't think of a 22-year-old in this country who could have done that. We don't have a single 22-year-old in this country who could have done that. Not one. Not one. Not one. I can't think of a single 22-year-old in the last 15 years who could have done that. And I know someone's going to tag me and say, I think Dennis McCann could do it. No. No. He'll be good and he'll be a world champion one day, but no. Aiden Mohammed, he's a young kid. Could he have done that? No. No. And it's not the fault of the current trainers. And it's, I mean, it's not the fault of anyone, actually. It's the system we've grown up in from a boxing perspective. You see a kid like Bam Rodriguez. He walks into a gym. He doesn't walk into a boxing club. He doesn't walk in, He walks into a gym. And in that gym will be doormen, in that gym will be MMA fighters, in that gym will be professional boxers, and in that gym will be amateur boxers. And you get in where you fit in. But what that means is you're exposed to what you need to become a successful professional. You see it so early, you see it so quickly, and you learn the little tricks. You get to see these guys with the little tricks, you know, pinning someone's arms with your forearms so they can't hit you, be able to spin someone by grabbing their neck, you know, being able to just spin by the elbow, those clever old school tricks that get passed down in American gyms. That's what Bam Rodriguez gets. That's what Mikey Garcia got. You know I mean, that's what Broner got. That's what Floyd Mayweather got. That's what Kevi Kelly Pavlik got. That's what Brand... Uh, forget his name. Guess what Gabe Rosado got? So Sergio Mora got Shane Mosey, Oscar De La Hoya. From being in gyms with wily old veterans, you learn a lot. That's why Thomas Hearns was the man that he was. You're in a gym with these seasoned old heads and they, don't, they may never go on to do anything in the sport. They may just stay being doormen or construction workers, but they still have knowledge you can take from. The contrast now is if you look at a British gym, I have to go to an amateur boxing club, right? And I'm taught by really skilled and experienced and very smart volunteers, but they're volunteers nonetheless who aren't that obsessed because it doesn't really define them. I can have a bad year this year and a good year next year. So you go into a system and they teach you how to please judges. They don't teach you really how to box. They teach you how to win amateur bouts. They teach you how to please amateur judges. Now, who are your amateur judges? Ex-fighters? No. Trainers? Rarely. Generally, they're just administrators who like being around amateur boxing but don't want to take any risk. That's generally what you find. You get some old heads who've, who've been in the sport a long time. I, I don't doubt that for a second, but a lot of the people taking the course now, nah. They're not people you would trust to assess a fight. So these kids are being dragged down the wrong route. They're not being rewarded for body shots. They're not being rewarded for the skill it takes to execute a left hook, left uppercut. They're not being rewarded for the skills they actually employ. So there's no incentive to be skillful. You just have to be fit and strong and just survive behind a one-two. So your whole amateur thing is one-two, one-two, one-two move, one-two. That's it. So when you go to the pros where it's a bit more 3D and you need a lot more wrinkles to your skill set, you're now having to manage having a professional career while learning to be a professional. You are literally learning on the job in a way that Americans don't. 
Americans just go from amateur to a bit of seasoning and then start chasing titles. Here, we go from amateur to kind of learning how to be a pro to being a pro to then go through the seasoning phase. And it's only in our late 20s, early 30s do we have that confidence that the Americans have to challenge for titles. Think about James DeGale. DeGale's not that much, old, uh, that much younger than Andre Durrell, but Durrell was fighting top level well before James. And I know they had different Olympic cycles, I accept that. But from, a, from an age profile, a career profile, Durrell had been in those trenches a lot sooner. And they had not identical amateur careers, similar amateur careers. But Durrell was able to make those leaps a lot faster than James was. And, I to, and James was probably the most talented guy we've had in a long time. Like, he was the Ben Whitaker of his era, a guy that could do everything. So I say all of that to say the American system, like the Soviet system or the Eastern European system, seems to be able to deliver good professionals. Why? Because there's a continuity from the first day you walk into a gym till you retire. There's a continuity in style and philosophy that we don't have here because we keep talking about them being completely different sports and they're not. They're, they're, they're identical sports but of differing durations. That's it. And because of the differing durations, it, it sort of begets different behaviours. That's all. But congratulations to Bam Rodriguez and I think as fans we should be challenging these coaches and we should be exposing the clowns. You know, let's expose the clowns, the hoaxes, the myths because Boxing's become this closed shop where they all like to talk nicely about each other and pretend everybody's cool. Listen, most of those guys are clowns and they're dog shit. And most trainers will tell you they're dog shit. But remember, the requirement in this country to be a successful coach is you need the money to have a gym facility. That's all. No prior experience or qualifications. No one ever questions that. People just love the fact that you have your own gym. I didn't think my, my Tuesday mass would be this long, so apologies and thank you for, for sticking through. Um, I'd quite like to get on with my life, actually, but I couldn't leave this episode without touching on Uma Ahmed's IFL interview with Eddie. Um, <laughs> um, so let me, let, me, let me try and be reasonable about this. Umar Ahmed's what makes IFL relevant now. You know, Cougar's at that age, he's a family man, he's been doing it for long enough, and I don't care what he tries to tell people, he's jaded, right? In, in interviews, he goes through the motions. I'm not saying he's not good, because Coogan can still entertain, but he goes through the motions now because he's been doing it for so long. You get jaded. And so what he has as his ace in the hole is Umar Ahmed, who, who comes prepared. Like, people won't understand this if they don't know Umar. Umar's a hardcore. Like, he's a hardcore. Like, uh, you know, Porky will blow smoke up Rob Tebbett's backside and say he's meant to be for the hardcores. He never was. Umar Ahmed is who Rob Tebbett wishes he was. He's as hardcore as they come. Yeah, I, I quite like speaking boxing with him. I think he's a good guy overall. And what I love about him, he's not afraid to ask questions that a fan would ask. And you saw that with the Eddie Hearn interview because Eddie, once again look rattled, and he really looks under pressure. Although I am going to check him on one thing, because he allowed Eddie Hearn to say that Katie Taylor versus Amanda Serrano is the biggest female fight that's been announced. Now, I'm sure that 
Clarissa Shields versus Savannah Marshall was announced last year. They just literally had to get some stay busy fights out the way and then they'd face each other. That is officially the biggest fight in women's boxing. The biggest female fight ever. More so for the Katie Taylor thing. Uh, not Katie Taylor, for the Clarissa Shields thing. You know, that's a two-time gold medalist. Katie Taylor is not, you know. So let's, let's get the hierarchy right. Clarissa Shields, number one. Nicola Adams, number two. Katie Taylor, number three. At best. At best, she's number three. Because you have to respect the two that really killed it in the amateurs. And they, they you know what I mean? They're from the same era. Now... Let's, let's look at this objectively. They've been on this press tour for the best part of a week. Not once has Katie Taylor trended, not once has Amanda Serrano trended, not once has the fight trended on social media. It hasn't. In that time, Eddie Hearns trended four times. So you go back to the old Suge Knight expression. If you don't want the owner of your label all up in your videos, all up in your songs, come sign with Death Row. Eddie just takes all of the attention, right? So no one's really talking about Amanda Serrano because no one knows who Amanda Serrano is. She's never fought here before. We, we don't get to see her fight. For me, she's someone who's the sister of a known drugs cheat. Her movements and weight would suggest that maybe, you know, there's a suspicion that she is taking drugs herself. You know, these, these are questions that are never thrown. You know, we, Ed, Ed, you know, Eddie likes to play the victim a lot, but no one's asking this. Like, if your sister was taking drugs, what's to say you're not taking drugs? Because that was part of a well-oiled doping machine. And if you notice, no one else seems to move up and down in weight that easily without there being questions asked. Manny Pacquiao had some horrible questions asked about him. And Amanda Serrano's got away scot-free, mainly because no one knows her, therefore nobody cares. Now, do I think Katie Taylor's popping pills? I'd say there's a high probability, probably in the high 70s, low 80s, that she's popping pills. Because, and I keep saying I'm going to do an episode with Larry, and I, all I can say to you guys is I'm still, I'm still gathering receipts, but we are going to do it. But you'll, you'll understand then how easy it can be to, to pass some of these testing protocols. But in summary, that's not the biggest fight in women's boxing. It's not the biggest fight that's been announced. They talk about the pre-sale. And it's almost as if Eddie forgot that Amir Khan and Kel Brook are fighting. And that sold out in seconds. But, you know, if you put that to him, he'd probably just say, ah, they sold it to StubHub, as if he's never done that. So th this is what happens when you believe your own hype and you believe that you can say anything unchallenged. You end up like Eddie Hearn did. And he's, he's the perfect victim for someone like Umar Ahmed because Umar will come prepared with facts because Umar doesn't want to look stupid in front of 50,000, 60,000 viewers. And so what, what happens when you come prepared is you're able to put Eddie Hearn under pressure because he doesn't like talking about things he said in the past. He only wants to talk about the here and now. And, you know... If you, if you can get hold of the interview, please do, because he pulls Umar up and he says, you ask people really easy questions, you give people the opportunity to prepare answers, and he goes, I do mine raw pretty much. Now, that's not true, because I've heard that Hearns asked for interviews to, to be done over, because he wants a different message to go out, which I don't have an issue with, by the way. I really don't have an issue with someone saying, actually, I might have gone too far in that one, can we start over? It's fair enough. Right? But to, to say that IFL don't ask probing questions, considering what he's been allowed to get away with for a decade, 
I think is disgusting and it disrespects the fans. And it shows that he, he literally is the emperor's new clothes in human form. Like he's so deluded about how powerful he is that he, he doesn't realize that we, we remember what he's been saying. We know all of his tactics now. We, we, we saw all of this coming. We, we saw the, the questioning of the, of the deposit being paid and the deposit was paid and the contracts went out well within the deadline. So Dillian White's team have loads of time to look at the contract that Eddie Hearn will never get to see because he's, he's not part of the promotion. And you can see that rankles with him. That really rankles with him because if he can't be involved in these big British fights, why have DAZN got him? You know, and, and you can see the pressure just building around him. He hasn't been able to secure a big British fight for a long time. And it seems that all the fights that he's struggled to make are suddenly being made. We, in Sky's first year, we're going to get Khan Brook in Shields versus Marshall. Insane. I wouldn't even be, well, I was going to say I wouldn't be surprised if, if White versus Fury landed on, on Sky, but to be honest, I think BT need it. And then once again, he pipes up with how many views he thinks that fight will do on BT Sport. And he's like, hey, 800,000, which is a backhanded compliment, isn't it? Because it's a number smaller than he claims for Joshua. And the guy can't help himself. He really can't help himself. And so when people ask me this question, oh, why are you so anti-Eddie? It's, it's more, I'm just anti the nonsense. And people can say, yeah, but Frank does something similar. I don't think Frank does. Frank's too old school to play these silly social media games. He's too old school. He even made this ridiculous claim that he's backed Dillian his whole career. Now, I've watched Dillian White fights from debut. There was no Eddie Hearn there. There was no Eddie Hearn until they realized they could make a Joshua fight. And then Eddie came out of nowhere, ever the opportunist, right? When Dillian was coming off the ban, this was the deal. Dillian wanted a year before he fought Joshua. Let me have a year, five, four or five fights, and then I'll fight Joshua. And they told him, you can have two fights, you fight Joshua. Anything longer than that, anything longer than that, you're going to miss your chance. That was the pressure they put on Dillian. Don't forget that. So when you saw Dillian undercooked and underconditioned for that magnitude of fight, now you know why. And then you move it on a bit. When Jerome Miller pulled out, why couldn't Eddie Hearn have given Dillian more money? Why couldn't he have changed? It was his fight to promote. Why couldn't he have said, actually, Dill, we're going to pay Jerome Miller $4 million. We'll pay you six because you're a bigger draw than Jerome Miller and you're a better fighter than Jerome Miller. He didn't do that. So this notion that Eddie Hearn has backed Dillian his whole career, not true. We saw the purses. We saw the purses. You know, the fact that Frank Warren is giving Dillian White his highest payday should tell you just how much Eddie Hearn cares about him. You know, and all that nonsense about the, the purse bids were rigged. Well, no, the purse bids weren't rigged. You were hoodwinked. The purse bids are the purse bids. You know, I think he said something along the lines of he's, he's manipulated purse bids before to his advantage. And then I was racking my head going, but what purse bids have you really won? There aren't many purse bids that Eddie Hearn has won. So, so I, I take that approach and I say, well... The, the man's deluded. And then so you go, right, let's take a step back from all of this and, and strip all the nonsense aside. And I guess this ties into everything I've been saying for the last few weeks. The DAZN experiment hasn't worked. 
I don't know how much money Eddie Hearn has spent. Let's just say he spent 300 million in three years. Can anyone account for where that money's gone apart from Canelo? Who's also keeping Eddie at arm's length, by the way. So Eddie's keeping Canelo at arm's length and so is Dillian. The only person not keeping him at arm's length is Joshua. But we come back to the question, where has that money gone? If I'm a new CEO at the zone, I want Eddie in the office going, where's the money gone? Okay, but where's the growth? It's a different conversation with Oscar because Oscar came with Canelo and he's got Ryan Garcia who's in the running for, for fighting Devin Haney. And that will do well for US growth because Oscar, you know, Oscar can drive things in America in a way that Hearn can't. And once again, like just through Hearn's arrogance, he's given Oscar the whip hand at the zone. He didn't have to be that way. Just refused to work with people, thought he was better than everyone. Meanwhile, everyone was just working together to shut him out. That's what happens when you genuinely have no friends in the sport. You don't. Like, Eddie just has people that rely on him for their living. He doesn't really have friends in the sport. I don't take pride in saying that. It's sad. He doesn't have friends in the sport. He doesn't have many school friends, which is another thing people don't talk about. He doesn't have many school friends. So I, I was at university with some girls that went to the same school that he did. Right? But they were, they were years younger because Eddie's older than me. So they were younger, but they knew him. He's like, nah, nah, you didn't have any friends. He'd try and buy people with wealth and stuff, but it never worked. He didn't have friends. I'm not saying he doesn't have friends in life, but in the things that matter, he wasn't able to, to be the hern that he projects in front of the camera. So you look at the zone and all that money has basically been urinated up the wall. There's no legacy to show for it. When you say, okay, who are DAZN's top stars? Uh, they're, they're all Oscars. He hasn't built a single star. You've got Danny Jacobs coming to fight John Ryder here at the Alexandra Palace. Danny Jacobs, who's fought where? Madison Square Garden? Barclays Center? Danny Jacobs is fighting at Ali Pali. Like he's Darren Barker, or like he's, you know, latter-day Audley Harrison. Like, come on, really? And we're supposed to believe that's a big fight. They're telling us that they, they sold 7,500 tickets. Right. There are tickets still available. And so all of this points to someone who's in rapid decline, but this is a decline of his own making because we wanted Eddie to succeed. When he talked about, I just want to make the fights the fans want to see. I'm like, well, we can get on board with that. And then he became the blocker to everything. And that's why he's lashing out now. That's why he's lashing out at Fury and he's lashing out at Frank. Because they're winning. They're winning. He keeps saying that Tyson Fury didn't want to fight Usyk. But we're like, well, you invoke the rematch clause. And the rematch clause meant that Usyk cannot fight anyone before he fights Joshua. So when was he supposed to have fought Usyk in order to have ducked him? He didn't. But once again, Hearn 101. If I just lie, and that's what he did, he just lied, right? If I just lie, someone will tweet it, it will become accepted and my job is done. With every passing month, as these promotional outfits like BT and Sky, Boxer and so forth, as they get their act together, what you're starting to see is Hearn gets squeezed 
and the tighter you squeeze, the more you realize there's no substance there. He hasn't invested in people. That's why all of a sudden now we're hearing about Josh Bartzi versus Craig Richards. I think that's even disrespectful to Craig. Because Craig has done so much off his own back that he probably, probably wants a world title shot again. He doesn't want to be messing around with Josh Bartzi. That's a backward step for him. To go from guys like Bivol to Joshua Bartzi, that's a backward step. And this is all of Hearn's own making. It's not hatred. It, he's like that colleague at work who comes in drunk the day after. And you're like, well, we've got a presentation to the board. And he's ah, don't worry, I'll be all right. I know what I need to say. And so, well, we don't know what you're going to say. And, you know, that's that not being a team player thing, thinking you can just show up and, you know, close the show yourself. And that's cool. You'll get some results, but there'll come a time when you'll need people and they'll remember all of this. And they'll just ignore you. And so when I, when I see what's happening to her now, I don't take much joy in it. I, can't, I do, I chuckle because it's funny. But I don't take joy in it because at the end of the day, that's a human being. It's, he's a husband, he's a father, all of these things, they're important. And you don't want that to be impacted by what's going on in boxing. I hope he uses it as an opportunity for reflection. I hope the, the new DAZN leadership encourage him to be more reflective in how he works. And I hope they help him to rebuild these relationships and he's more respectful in how he does business. Because boxing will move past him pretty quickly. And all he will be is a mouth for hire. That's all. You need to bring some energy to whatever it is you're doing, you just get Eddie Hearn involved. That's all. But like I keep saying, you're at DAZN, which is essentially a tech company that does media as well. You don't know anything about tech. You don't know anything about rapid growth, as you've shown. You know a little bit about boxing, yeah, by all means. I don't doubt that. But clearly not enough to spend $300 million wisely. That's all we can say on that. Yeah. I wish him all the best, but if he carries on like this, 2023 is going to be a really dark year for Eddie Hearn. And on that note, I'm going to tap out and say, whew, I can't believe I've done nearly an hour and I'm tired. But I appreciate you guys tuning in as always. If you enjoy the content, share it, introduce it to a friend, introduce it to someone in the sport who, who may need this in their life. And, you know, let's keep building the brand and keep growing. You know, take care. The only thing I need a cut of is this unbelievable Tom Sweeney double-breasted whistle. Just wondering if Dilly, Dillian just offered you something out of his... Yeah, we'll see. It'll be very nice. <laughs> bet it would. Bet it would. Um, OK, now you also said in Cougar's interview that uh, they manipulated the bid. Now, I think everyone in boxing knows they would have done a deal with Tyson Fury. It's not illegal what they've done. I would have done the same thing. What you do is, to get control of the fight, you agree a purse with the, the lion's share fighter... And you, therefore, you can overbid, and what you're bidding, you're not actually paying. So that's what has happened in this case, and it's happened with me before. I've done it before. It's not illegal. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a smart way to win a purse bid. But if you had done it, would you say you've manipulated it? It's just a little bit of a negative term, isn't it? No, but that's you, Umar. You, you know, that's ultimately, no one else has said that other than you. Manipulated it is when you manipulate the numbers in your favour 